0: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and I am joined this week by my friend Evan Unzelman. Evan is the president of Sterling Foundation Management. Uh, Sterling Foundation Management is many things, but among those things, it is uh, an organization that helps people to arrange their charitable remainder trusts, I'll say, which is probably a, a very broad uh, definition that Evan has been going to really uh, distill down to its important component parts. So Evan, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So for uh the few people in the world who don't know who you are, why don't you at least give folks your kind of high-level CV here?
1: Sure. So Sterling, uh, we are a charitable planning firm. Uh, we work through professional advisors. So we were co-founded in 1998 Um, to work through trust and estate attorneys, financial advisors, and CPAs. And we were, at the beginning, really aimed at private foundations. And so the idea was when a professional, whether it's an attorney, CPA, or financial advisor, wants to recommend a, a foundation to a client, there's a firm that's turnkey and outsourced, but non-competitive. So they can they can outsource everything that they don't do um, to Sterling um, to keep that entity in compliance, moving forward and, and working with the client and grant making and governance and family meetings and things like that. Um, and they don't have to worry about the firm competing. And so. The, the, the space has changed a lot. So donor advised funds were around them, but not like they are today. Um, and a lot of our clients really are, we work with a pretty small client base, about 300 families right now across the country. But most of our clients are very, have what I usually refer to as a heightened interest in their philanthropy. In many cases, they've been affected in some way, um, in many cases, unfortunately, um it's not a positive, um, you know, we work a lot with uh, children's health and education, um, you know, where there's been, you know, a child or themselves have been affected by a disease and they're very attached to their philanthropy and they're looking for sophisticated advice on how to go about attacking it. And what that means is a lot of our, many of our clients want to operate their own programs. So we end up working with with or, or uh, managing supporting organizations, operating foundations, public charities donor advised funds, uh, you name it. So, But really the forte at Sterling is what we call charitable advisory, which is really providing that advice to clients who are, are really interested in attacking a, a, a particular charitable goal. Um, and then as an offshoot in the early 2000s, we developed the CRT business. It, it I say an offshoot because some of our, uh, our, they still have a, a large foundation with us. Some business partners, their investment advisors approached us about buying income streams from CRTs. And that two years later, uh, led us to, um, you know, getting, getting involved in the CRT space. And most of our activity is, is, is rooted in what we call secondary planning for CRTs. So th- this is working with CRTs. That are fairly deep into their, their, their existence, their life, their life cycles, 10, 15 plus years. And working with clients where there's, there's been some misalignment and it's, you know, you've got a CRT that's most CRTs, of course, are lifetime vehicles. They're going to be around for a really long time, but they're irrevocable. So we can't change those key terms. So what we've discovered and learned is that, you know, over the, the, the duration of that lifespan, um, that combination of an irrevocable trust and the client's life as it starts changing can lead to that misalignment. So we work with. With advisors on on fixing those misalignments, there's a couple couple strategies that we've developed, um, as well as um, strategies that we can be helpful with that wouldn't wouldn't um, transact through through our our firm. And in the process, we've looked at about 8,000 CRTs and 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 spoken with tens of thousands of benefit, in, income beneficiaries and, and their advisors. So we've really developed a, a you know an expertise in this space, and we get involved a lot in the design of of, of the upfront. A creation process, designing CRTs, particularly more complex situations where we work a lot with NIMCRUTs that are put into deferral um, using partnerships and um, really sophisticated planning that involve uh, uh, charitable trusts, ma- mainly remainder trusts, but also lead trusts as, as well. So um, I know I think we're we're here today to talk a lot about the rollover, which is which is um, probably the, the most popular right now of the secondary planning alternatives that are available. Um, but really when it comes to CRTs, um, you know, we can probably be helpful. So we, we, we always aim to be that first call when, when someone has a situation involving a charitable remainder trust.
0: Yeah. And that's, uh, all of those services are, are incredible. You guys also have a, uh, a family office service as well, which I think kind of lends itself pretty well to the philanthropic side and for a little bit of gloss for anybody who is not really sure what any of those words really mean, basically, um, when when people are wealthy enough that their their wealth is their business, um, it, it operates like a business. You need help to really kind of operate the wealth and make it deploy the way that you want. And so so those sorts of families tend to have a cadre of professionals around them managing the way that they're deploying their money, be it for philanthropic or for profit purposes. And these family office services are, are very much uh, hands-on, managerial, business investment type of services that groups like Sterling can provide to help those families because it's just it's a lot. I mean, you have a lot of money. When we're talking about a lot, we're talking about many millions of dollars. We're not talking about thousands of dollars. Um, no single person has enough time in their life to do all the things to properly deploy it the way that they want, to meet the goals that they want philanthropically or or otherwise. So yeah, you guys, you guys kind of cover both sides of the coin.
1: That's right. Yep. Everything's sort of rooted in, in the, 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 the family's philanthropic activities, mm-hmm. but it is all intertwined. I mean, when, in, in, as we've grown the buyer pool for, for income interest in CRTs, um, you know, our, our it, it's a multifamily office, you know, that, that's what we're looking for, that type of client. It's not just a wealthy client with good liquidity. It's generally a client that's highly charitable uh, and, and in most cases has some form of a tax attribute so um, yeah we're we're all working together but um, you know many different things here but it, it, everything sort of revolves around kind of this
0: crossroads of philanthropic and tax and financial planning yeah we've talked about uh charitable remainder trusts on the podcast but maybe just for a quick kind of high-level snapshot. Why don't you explain the the typical setup of the charitable remainder trust and then where it is in that life cycle that you guys uh get dropped into.
1: Sure. And and the setup is when we're talking about the rollover, it involves creating a new CRT. So it's I always bring folks back to that creation process. So when a a CRT, um, a lot of people when they hear charitable, it's oh, so this is a, a charitable play here. Um, there's certainly a charitable component to a CRT, but that is not usually the driver. If, if, my, if, if, if my goal is charity, I'm going to give that asset outright to charity, whether it's my foundation, my donor advised fund, or my alma mater charity down the street, et cetera. So the goal with a CRT is tax driven. So a client has appreciated property. Um, it's used, it's usually a capital asset. So, Publicly traded stock, closely held stock, partnership interests, real estate, some some uh, appreciated capital asset uh, without debt cannot be encumbered um, that the client wants to sell but does not want to pay the capital gains tax. And so a CRT is a tax deferral vehicle. It's not avoiding the tax. If I have a piece of property worth a million dollars and my basis is two hundred thousand, and I don't want to pay the the capital gain on that on that that eight hundred thousand the tax on the $800,000 gain, I can put the property into the CRT. The CRT is exempt. It will sell it. And that gain then drops into an accounting tier inside the CRT. As I take income from the CRT, I'm paying the tax. And the way that the income is comes out of a CRT, any ordinary income has to be distributed first. So I'm probably actually going to pay a, a higher tax rate on that income from the trust. Um, but the goal is, number one, to defer that capital gain and then of course I retain an income interest in that trust. So it's usually set up for a, a couple, you know, my, my wife and me and, and worthy income beneficiaries, usually lifetime income beneficiaries. That's why these trusts last, last such a long period of time. And, um, you know, pay a fixed percentage typically each year, um, usually five to 10, sometimes five, 10 to 15%, depending on the, the, you know, the, the, the client's goals. And it from a very early point in, in the overall life of the CRT, um, the sole benefit to me is that income interest. So even though it was a tax driven uh, decision to create the trust, all those tax benefits are achieved very early in the life of the trust. That's when I. Uh, diversify it. That's when that that the, the asset. That's when I defer the capital gain. That's when I, I I take or at least start taking the tax deduction. So I'm I'm given a tax deduction based on an IRS calculation of what the the, the IRS projects on a present value basis will eventually go to charity. Now, of course, because this is usually tied to to, to lifetimes. And it's a present value calculation. It's, it's usually a pretty small percent has to be at least 10%. Um, but it's usually pretty close to that 10 to 20% of the assets that go into the trust. Again, if my goal is that tax deduction, I'm going to give that asset outright to charity. And then I get to take the, take my deduction at a million dollars. In this case, that gift to charity is well into the future. So that tax deduction is, is smaller. In most cases the clients are going to use it up there, you know, in the first year or two. So at, at a very early point in the overall life of this trust my benefit is rooted in uh, uh is rooted in that income stream that income interest so there's CRTs or split interest trust there's it's not owned by the trust is not owned by anyone it's owned by two parties me the income beneficiary the non-charitable beneficiary I own the income interest and charity the remainder beneficiary owns what's left in the trust um at at my death or the last of my wife and I to to pass away So what happens is this is a perfect fit at inception, but I cannot change the terms of the trust. I can't change who the beneficiaries are, the payout rate, even if it were to benefit the charity. I can't change the terms of the trust. And so what happens is as the further I get away from when I created the trust, the more likely it is that my situation has changed. And and uh, Dave Murray, who's the, the vice president at Sterling in, in charge of our CRT services, they, they have assembled all this data over the years and they're just now putting together sort of a summary of it. And what we've learned is it's intuitive. It makes intuitive sense that, okay, sure. The, 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 the longer that CRT is, it has been in existence, the more likely it is there's this misalignment between the client situation now and this trust they created many, many years ago. Um, but what what our data is able to do is put a number on that. And what we've learned is it's sort of it's right around a decade. So during the first decade of that CRT's life, there's unlikely to be anything um, that will lead to that misalignment. And if it is, it's usually pretty sudden, meaning a divorce. And we work with a lot with divorcing couples with CRT's, um, you know, a, a change in health status, the death of a spouse, something like that. But it's usually not until kind of that 10 to 15 year point where we start to see these misalignments and then we see them at an increasing rate moving forward. So what we always tell advisors is if you have any CRTs that have been around for more than 10 years, make sure you review them with the client. And that's where we can uh, we can be helpful. So we'll review the trust and give the advisor and the client an idea as far as what can the client do with their income interest in the trust. The, the client's income interest is a capital asset. That's what gives them the ability to do many different, well, not many, several different things with with their their income interest. So, that the the tax and legal for all the attorneys out there. Um, this goes back to a 1972 revenue ruling that establishes uh, an income interest in a. A trust, not just a CRT and a trust is a capital asset. So the client owns a capital asset in the trust. So they can do with that what they can do with any capital asset. They can sell it. So at Sterling, we've developed a, a third, really a secondary market of third party buyers for these income streams. Um, they can give it outright to charity or they can roll it into a new CRT. <clears throat> so we had, we've been doing the sale. We, we, so we were approached by some potential buyers in, in 2001. Uh, we use an, uh, an outside law firm called uh, Venable. And so we went to uh, Doug Siegler is the name of our our attorney. And of course, we made sure we could do this. Um, you know, we had some some. These were uh, business partners who had a uh, or still have a large private foundation with us. They they uh, their investment advisors approached us because these these um, these business partners had a taxable entity with a very large loss in it they called a net operating loss. And for all the CPAs out there, you know, if you've got an NOL in a, in a taxable entity, you need income to, to use that up. And so what they were interested in is, is acquiring income streams from CRTs. And they knew that even though they could, could pay what's a discount to their after tax value, cause they're not paying any tax on the income. Um, but if they're, if they're buying it from someone who's paying tax, there's this tax differential between that buyer and the seller that lead us, um, to, to, you know, we can broker the sale of that income stream at a price that would make sense for for both sides and so and just we were, to, and and just sure. to sort of
0: interject on that uh, to mm-hmm. your point so so nobody's lost on that is that you know if you've got a buyer that's sitting on net operating losses they exist in the world by the way for anybody who thinks this is fantasy you know or, ca- well
1: so capital loss carry forwards for yeah. individuals <laughs> unused like, charitable deductions yeah sure any this tax this happens attribute
0: this happens. Yeah. Um, you can't make use of that unless you have income coming at you. So can you sort of manufacture income on a consistent, like fairly uh, uh, calculable basis? Well, these these income streams out of charitable remainder trusts are exactly that you can essentially guess, although with say like a crut, you know, maybe there's going to be some fluctuation year to year, but you, you potentially can influence the way that the investments are done. You can influence the way the payouts going to be made out of the trust. So now you've got an income stream coming at you and you know you've got income coming to you that you can offset with deductions, meaning you're paying for something that when it gets paid out to you, you you're paying for an income stream that when it gets paid to you if you have the the losses or the deductions you can offset it on your taxes and it's like so, sort of like tax free money so that's anyways that's the incentive that Evan is digging at if anybody kind of missed that from the buyer side
1: right and and what so they're obviously they're looking at all different sorts of income sources i mean there's a, mm-hmm. you know fixed income and you know there's a lot of different ways to pick up income But what they liked is that they knew that that, the seller, the client who has a CRT is paying the tax. So if, 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 if if Brent has a CRT and is paying 20% tax on every dollar, so he's keeping 80 cents on every dollar, if I can take, you know, pay a lower effective tax rate to the, down to the point where I'm not going to pay tax at all and it's worth 100 cents in the dollar, that's that 20 cent spread where we, we can broker the sale, um, you know, at a price that makes sense for both sides. But yes this is you know, right now there's like think 75 or 80 buyers. So this is not a deep, this is, this is a, a niche market to, to begin with, but obviously it's a very unique set of facts that we're looking for in terms of it's, it, I mentioned this earlier. It's not just, um, it's not just high net worth with good liquidity. Um, you know, if I buy Brent's interest, I'm, I'm taking on mortality risk. You know, I've made a bet that because we can't change that trust. So it's still tied to his lifetime, still pays charity when he dies. And so what we found is if we can align the the charitable uh, interest of the buyer and seller so that the, 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 the the buyer knows that A, I'm going to diversify this mortality risk. I'm I'm not just going to buy one of these. I'm going to buy a lot of these income streams, but B, in the event that, that Brent passes early, the benefiting charity, which is getting paid early is one that I'm favorable to. That it's not a direct hedge, but it's sort of an indirect on hedge on that mortality risk. So it's, it's very unique market, but it's, you know, for a 50 person firm in, in Northern Virginia, it's been, it's been plenty big enough for us and. Um, we we were doing these sales throughout the the, the early to mid 2000s, and and what we learned, and this is the other thing that we've learned with 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 the data. So we start to see that you know 10 to 15 years is where these misalignments start to occur. Now another thing I should mention is that the IRS also releases data on CRTs periodic periodically, and so that gives us sort of a macro view into the marketplace. There's about 100,000 CRTs in, in the United States. They just recently. Started releasing data on the origin of the, of the trust. So when they were created, the average age of CRT out there is about 20 years. So we, we've learned that 10 to 15 is where these misalignments start to occur. And the average age of CRT out there is, is older than that. And so that gives what's been. The biggest problem here is client awareness. It's most of these clients, because the trust is irrevocable, they view it as a lifetime lockup. So it's really incumbent on the advisors to make sure that the client understands this is what you can do with 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 your your income interest and. So the other thing we learned with with with, as we we were started to do these reviews was um, where there was a misalignment, the 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 client situation behind that misalignment. Obviously, if we're looking at any particular trust and family, there's that situation is unique. But if we take it up and look at it um, on a. You know, sort of in general terms, there was this one situation that encapsulated um, more of these by wide margin, more of these beneficiaries than any other. And and that was, they didn't want or need all that taxable income anymore. And they had heirs, usually children or grandchildren, that they would rather see benefit from the trust. And so we kept hearing this. And at that time, there was just, there was nothing available. So we looked at, well, can you decant a charitable remainder trust? Well, no. Um, we looked at, so, you know, at we can do a court modification or today you can do a non, non judicial settlement agreement, um, in certain states. But I mean, we're there. We're cleaning up trustee language or something like that. We can't lower or increase payout rates and add beneficiaries. So we were sort of back to the drawing board. And so at, what we knew was, okay, we, we know we can't change the trust, but we know that the client's interest in the trust, that income interest is a capital asset that they own. That's what the client owns. And we knew that there's, that's a, there's a, a market for that. There's value for that. So that's what led us to the rollover. And that's really the idea behind the rollover is okay, we can't change the trust, but we can use this the client's income interest in that trust to create a new trust that's reflective of their situation and goals today. And so for most of these clients, what that means is I've got this, you know, I, I, I compare it a lot to a house. This is not, we're not anti-CRT here. Like, so if I buy a house, I'm probably not going to live in it forever. Um, you know, Hopefully my kids will be moved out in, in 20 years and we my wife and I can downsize or, Move to a warmer state or a lower tax rate state, et cetera. It doesn't mean it was a bad decision to buy the house or it didn't work great when, when we had it. it. Just mean that my situation changed. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening here is these clients are just in a situation now where they're trying to reduce their taxable income. Um, and their, their planning goals have really shifted to their kids and their grandkids and. So that's the idea behind the rollovers. We're going to take the client's income interest and use that to create a new CRT that's going to benefit children and or or grandchildren. And again, I always go back. So what we're doing here is no different than when the client created the original CRT. So there's really this. I always frame it as a three step process. You know, I go to Brent, my attorney who drafts the CRT. We then fund it. I need to contribute property. To the trust, and then the trust will sell it, will monetize that property. So and that process is always the same. Now, what makes the process vary a little bit is the type of asset. If I'm funding my CRT with publicly traded stock, that's a different process for contributing that stock to the trust and selling it than if I'm contributing real estate. In the case of a rollover, the capital asset that I'm contributing to the new trust is um, my income interest in my existing trust. Um, and you would think of sterling, so if you're if you contribute real estate to a trust, the trust will use a real estate agent to sell that asset in the case of a ro- rollover when you've contributed income interest to the trust um for better or worse, think of us like that real estate agent you know we're we're we will go out and the trust will engage Sterling, to go out, find a buyer, and monetize that income income interest. So at the end of the day, what we're doing is if Brent has a CRT and, and the value of his income interest in that trust is a million dollars, that at the end of the day is in a new trust for his kids. And now go back to the sale option, Brent can sell that, you know, we'll, a buyer will buy that income stream from Brent for a million dollars. That's capital gain, you know, to, to Brent. It's capital gain to the seller. It's a capital transaction because he sold a capital asset. If he does a rollover for his kids, gives the income interest to a new CRT and that sells it, the buyer doesn't care where they're buying it from. They'll pay that new trust a million dollars, but it's a taxable event to the new trust. So that million dollars drops into the, the capital gain tier of the trust accounting income. So you've got a million dollar CRT now that will pay, um, you know, Brent's children for their lifetime. So here's where it, this is a blank slate so that it can go a lot of different directions here. There's really two main. You know, two, the, the two most common scenarios they'll struck in terms of how these new CRTs are structured. Um, the, probably the most common is Brennan's, is, you've created this new CRT, but you are the immediate and, and, you know, you and your wife are the immediate lifetime income beneficiaries, but you structure that trust for deferral and then your kids are the successor beneficiaries. Depending on your ages and your kids' ages, it may, that successor interest. Might not be able to go for your kids' lifetimes, and they have to pull it back to a term um, for it with a maximum of twenty years. But so we'll, 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 what happens is that million dollars goes into this new trust, but it's put into deferral, and so that million dollars is just going to grow tax free until the last of Brent and his wife pass away, at which time it will begin paying their their kids. So that really supercharges that growth because you have all that tax free compounding. Inside of that new CRT, the other way that the other uh, that we see a lot is Brent will say, um, "Well, I I understand that that w- will create a maybe more total income for my kids, but I really want this to start benefiting them right now." And so he'll roll over in that new CRT. He'll have his kids on as the immediate uh, lifetime income beneficiaries. That way, it'll pay them right away. Some cases you can put on that they want to put on the grandchildren. A lot of times, everything goes into a, a, a donor advised fund. Um, when it's all done and then the grandkids give the money away. So it's sort of this, it's a way to take this capital asset that the client has now that's distributing taxable income they don't want and turn that into more wealth, uh, via income for their, for, for their. Yeah,
0: and it, in exactly the same way that you could do that with say a parcel of land, mm-hmm. uh, because the income stream off the CRT is like you've been saying, it's just a capital asset. It just happens to be a particular type of asset that cannot be easily diversified on a tax-free basis into Apple stock or Tesla stock or whatever else you want. And if you wanted to do that, then exactly the way you got into the initial CRT, you're thinking, well, I just dropped this single capital asset or This sort of this asset class into the CRT. Let the CRT sell it. The CRT pays no tax. That defers the tax, and then the CRT can reinvest the 100% of those proceeds into something else. So it's taking that income stream, treating it like a capital asset, putting it into CRT2, letting CRT2 sell the income stream because it's just a capital asset, and then reinvest 100% of the gross proceeds in you know net of maybe expenses, but. 100% of those proceeds on a tax-free basis in whatever other diversified investments the CRT is going to be invested in. So it's it's a really clever solution to a typical problem, which is you have an asset that you want to diversify out of. How do you diversify out of that particular asset? And these income streams off of CRTs, they're just like a really non-diverse, clunky asset class. Because you're you're locked into them, you're kind of stuck. Yeah. The
1: the other problem is if if I ha, it's it's so often we hear there the, the what's frustrating so much about us in, in standard crap which most are is there's no ability to defer you have no control so we hear all the time well I just won't take the income well, you, you're still going to get K one for it so I guess you don't have to take it but you don't want to pay tax on income you don't get I mean there's no ability to uh, defer that income, so in many cases, we can to some extent control the 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 taxable income from the asset in the case of most c r t s it's 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 impossible to to control it and and that you know a lot of times will will lead to um you know some complaining on the client's part. <laughs>
0: Well, it's, I think it's to your point, which is perfect, which is that circumstances can change. You now you can set up CRT number one and on day number one, it's great. This is exactly what somebody wants, but over the course of 10 or 15 years, things change. Their circumstances change and it might not be that pleasant for them to receive income and just have to pay you know, income off of the trust and have to pay tax on that income because it's just piling on top of other tax that they're paying already. And they'd prefer not to pay the tax on the income stream that's coming out of that trust. Well, if that's the case and those stars align, then one of these rollovers can really be the solution because you can restructure the deal. In essence, you can sort of yeah, roll and- over into a new trust, restructure the deal, you can get some more deferral. Exactly,
1: and and it's it's as as attractive as as this is from a tax standpoint for the client. Usually, that's secondary. Usually, the driver is the ability to get additional income and wealth to to the to the the kids. So, mm-hmm. you know, clients love. Shutting down taxable income streams and reducing their own taxable income, but if we sort of look at the drivers here, that top driver is typically the ability to to push uh, push more wealth to the to the to their children. So it's yeah, um, and, and then one other thing. So uh, you know we're we're asked a lot, and it's an important point. So you, we talked you you were talking about CRT one and CRT two and this is the same with the sale CRT1 is not affected you know so in a lot of cases that we think okay well we're funding this new CRT with our income interest in our existing one so what so assets come from the existing no we can't we can't affect that CRT in any way the buyer is paying for the right to receive income from the trust the buyer's bringing cash from their assets or one of their entity's assets to buy that future income stream which is unaffected that trust is unaffected so the buyer inherits the the income stream along with the compliance responsibility um but the terms of the trust do not change it 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 continues on and pays out just as if um there was not a rollover or sale everything happens exactly the same one of the we do not close the file on a transaction until so we're asked a lot you know if i just sell my income stream what are my future responsibilities well you don't have any um there's only one thing that you need to do is and usually you just put a note in your will or your estate plan that says, you know, to the executor of your estate at my death or the last of my wife and I to pass. Um, go to SterlingFoundations.com, look up the current chief financial officer, call him or her and tell them I've died. And at that point, we will get in touch with the buyer. And make sure that that trust is paid out and close, close the file on the transaction. So the old trust is, is we're, we we asked, well, how does, how's charity affected? So if we look at the sale, if I buy Brent's income stream, nothing changes. It just, so it's, it's neutral for, for charity. It's still going to pay charity at the same, same time. And, and, uh, just as if Brent had not sold, sold the income stream, but with the rollover, instead of Brent selling it, he's actually used the value of that income interest to create a new trust. So it does actually create it's usually small but it it actually creates a deduction for charitable deduction for Brent for the the present value of that eventual uh, payment to charity but it now it's a, a net positive for charity because that that old CRT is not affected but now we do have this new CRT that's eventually going to pay charity so charity's coming out ahead with with the rollover and is unaffected with with the um, with the with just the straight sale another option for a client is what we call gifting out now we don't see this a lot but if the client says, I don't need this taxable income anymore. Um, you know, I don't want it. Um, first thing we're going to ask them is, okay, you have, you really have two choices. We can remove that taxable income stream for you. Who do you want the benefit to go to? Because that, the benefit's going to go to someone. It's going to go to charity or it's going to go to your, your heirs. And if the client says, well, I'd rather it go to my heirs and then charity, we're going to go the rollover. If the client says I, either I don't have kids or juniors got enough, um, they're gonna just give everything to charity today. What that will do is, you know, the client will irrevocably contribute their income interest to the charitable remainderman. That will collapse the trust, and then the client can take a deduction for the IRS value of that of their income interest. So there's different. It really depends on the goal set for the client. But what we found is that most clients. Would rather shut the taxable income stream down and the benefit go to their heirs first and then charity. Cause it's, you know, with the rollover, it eventually will go to charity, then straight to charity. But you know, there's, there is good options available when these misalignments occur. Problem is most of the time there was a, there's a Steve Jobs quote that he said, um, how can someone want what they don't know exists? And so we'll, we'll, we'll present a lot to advisors and they'll say, ah, oh, yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense. I understand when this comes up, I know who to call. Well, the problem is it's probably not going to come up because the client doesn't know that they even have that option or any of these options. So what we always tell the advisors again, particularly once that CRT is 10 years old, you'll have that trust reviewed and lay these options out for the clients that moving forward, um, you know, they, they know that these options exist and when they run into certain situations where they're a fit, they
0: can exercise the, the alternative at that time. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's the, uh, on your, on your review list, if you're reviewing these sorts of things with clients as their CPA, financial advisor, attorney, et cetera, you add this to the list. You know, you, yes. you, you've got to explore the option. The answer could be nope. Everything's going great. Nothing needs to be done. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. perfectly fine. We're not trying to suggest that there is a problem with any of these like you were, exactly. you were saying, you know, it's like you guys are an anti CRT. I think uh, the point is more being pro flexibility where it fits the circumstances of the client and then telling the client that they have this type of flexibility should they want it. And- right. It's
1: it's like other planning. Right. So if it mm-hmm. is if for Brent for for it's like if a client has grandkids, you're probably going to adjust the estate plan, you know. If, if a client for the investment advisors out there, as a client ages, nears, approaches, and then enters retirement, you're, you're, you're adjusting that portfolio, um, you know, from the risk profile. Um, as they age, this is, it's just the same thing here. We're adjusting the planning as the client situation changes over time. Yeah.
0: Very good point. Well, Evan, I can chat with you about this all day long, but I know you have things to do and, and I probably should do work for clients who are on my schedule today. So, uh, if people are trying to find you, where can they find you? Um,
1: so, you know, go to our website, all the contact information is up there, but, um, I'll, I'll give our number here and, um, and my email. Um, and it's it's uh any anything with the CRT. It doesn't have to be specific here. We're always happy to to chat about it and answer questions. If we probably have the answer, if we don't, we can, we can get one. Um, so the best number for just direct to our back office here is 703-677-8747. 703-677-8747. And then my email is just eunzelman at sterlingfoundations.com. So if you just go to sterlingfoundations.com, all the contact information is there. That's plural. S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. Perfect.
0: And I'll put all that in the, in the show notes too so people can look there for Perfect. it. And your, your website is great. You know, I recommend anybody uh, who's looking for further resources on these topics. You guys have lots of workups and white papers and stuff on there so people can find additional information there. Evan, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Thank, oh, you, thank you very much. You. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's been fun. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at Wealth and Law. I'll see you there.